Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 7th, 2017, and my guest is Gabriel Zuckman, professor of economics at the University of California, Berkeley. He's the author of The Hidden Wealth of Nations, The Scourge of Tax Havens, which was published in 2015. Our topic for today is his recent paper with Emmanuel Saez and Thomas Piketty, Distributional National Accounts, Methods, and Estimates for the United States, which has received a great deal of attention uh, in the popular press and among economists. Gabriel, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you very much for having me. So it's a, it's a very uh, provocative and complicated paper. Uh, we're going to try to do two things today, uh, among a few others, but we're trying to try to give listeners uh, an idea of what the paper uh, finds and then how such a finding is actually constructed using data. So some of the background of, uh, of how this kind of empirical work is done. So let's start with the key findings of the paper uh, in a recent uh, treatment for the for the uh, average person, not for an economist, uh, which is uh, you wrote up, we'll we'll link to that write up. Uh, you su- you suggest there are three key findings. Uh, what are they? So what we try to do in this research is to compute income growth for each group of the population in a way that's consistent with macroeconomic growth. And so there are indeed three big findings. So the number one finding is that you had some growth in in the United States since 1980, that is the average income per adult has increased about 60% since 1980. Corrected for inflation. Corrected for inflation, so in real terms, exactly. And including, I just want to make one, this is really important, this this isn't just earnings, this is all forms of income, taxes, transfers, right? This is all income as recorded in the national account. So that, that is the headline figure uh, when we that we hear when we talk about GDP growth, about the macroeconomic growth rate of the country. So if you compute macroeconomic growth per adult, what you get is this number of 61% increase in total income since 1980. But the number one finding is that that you know income has been income growth has been very unequal. So if you look at income growth for the bottom 50% of the distribution before taxes and transfers, so before any form of government intervention, you've had zero growth for the bottom 50%. So for half of the population, they've been completely been shut off economic growth. Their income in real terms has not increased. The second finding we have is that, you know, by contrast, at, at the top of the distribution, there's been uh, a, a lot of growth. So if you look at the top 1%, uh, their income has been multiplied by three uh, in real terms since 1980. Um, to give a sense of how, how heterogeneous growth really has been in the US, so we, we can express these, these numbers in terms of real growth rates per year. So when I say that growth, average income has increased 60% since 
since 1980, that's equivalent to an annual real growth rate of 1.4%. So that's the average in the US. What we find is that for the vast, vast majority of the population, the, the growth that they've experienced has been much less than 1.4% per year. In fact, for the bottom 88 percentiles, so for 88% of the population, income has grown less than 1.4% per year. It's only for the top 12% that income has grown at or above 1.4%. And among that group, it's really only in the top 1% and top 0.1 and top 0.001% that you see high growth rates of 3, 4, 5% per year. Um, and so that's important because some people have a view that uh, what's, what has happened in the US is that, let's say, the top quintile, so the top 20% um, has pulled apart from the rest of the economy. And that's not really what we find. We find that rising inequality in the U.S. is really very much a story about the top 1%. So another finding we have is um, how do these results change when you take into account taxes and transfer, so the effect of government intervention? One limit of current estimates of inequality in the U.S. is that they don't take properly into account the, the role of taxes and transfers. And all the numbers that I've mentioned right uh, up until now were about pre-tax and transfer income. Now, after taxes and transfers, and when you take into account all forms of taxes at the federal level, at the state and local government level, and all forms of transfers, you know, whether monetary transfers or in-kind transfers or public good spending, what we find is that government redistribution has made growth slightly more equitable, but only slightly so. That is, if you get back to this bottom 50% of the distribution that has experienced zero growth pre-tax and transfer, after taxes and transfers, its income has grown a little bit. It has increased by about 20% since 1980. Uh, that is still much, much less than the average uh, growth of 60%, and of course, much less than uh, growth at the top of the distribution. So our conclusion here is that despite important changes in, in, in government transfers and the expansion of some important programs like Medicare and Medicaid, that has not been enough to significantly lift the income of uh, working class Americans, of the bottom 50%. And the last finding that we have, which I think is particularly interesting, is that what we're currently trying to do now is to compute similar statistics in other countries. And we've done that in France. And we can compare, let's say, the income growth rate for the bottom 50% in France and in the United States. And the trajectory has been very different. In 1980, the bottom 50% income earners used to be uh, about 10% uh, richer in the US than in France. But 
what has happened is that in France, since 1980, bottom 50% incomes have continued to grow at roughly the same rate as macroeconomic growth in France, while in the US they've completely stagnated. And as a result, now the bottom 50% in, in France is significantly richer, earns more income than in the US. And that is before taxes and transfers. And that what makes this result particularly spectacular. I'm not talking about the generous welfare, French welfare state. That's not what's driving our results. Before tax and transfer, so looking just at, at market income, the bottom half of the distribution, half of the population now uh, uh, does better in France than in the United States. And that's our last main finding. So listeners will not be surprised that I'm skeptical of these findings, right? Um, and I, I have to say, I, I find them hard to believe. So I'm going to give you a chance to convince me over the next uh, 50 or so minutes. Um, but let's start with how you constructed these. So to give listeners a little bit of background, uh, how would you begin to use the national income accounts? Let me say it differently. Um, you might, listeners, you might understand, you might hear that uh, capital share has gone up or down compared to labor, or um, uh, men and women have had different wages and uh, growth rates of wages over a particular time period. But Gabriel, what you're, I think, trying to do here is say, well, when GDP grew 3.2% in such and such a year, how much of that went to the bottom quintile, the the the, the 20% who are the poorest in the United States, how much went to the top 1%. That's a very hard task. So how would you begin, how do you begin to make the assumptions that you need to do to, to apportion those gains to different strata of the income distribution? And let me know if I have that, if that's the right question. Yeah, but that's a great question. That's exactly what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is to bridge the gap between the study of macroeconomic growth where people use national accounts data uh, and the study of inequality uh, where people use tax data and survey data to study the distribution of income or the distribution of wealth. The problem is that there is a large gap between the total income that you see in survey and tax data and total macroeconomic income total GDP or national income. Um, and that's a problem because then it makes it hard to decompose macroeconomic growth by income group, to have just growth statistics for each fractile of the income distribution, for each group of the income distribution that add up to the headline GDP growth number. So the way that we try to bridge this gap is by combining national accounts, tax data, and survey data. So they all have strengths and weaknesses, but if you combine them and you can try to approximate the distribution of total national income as recorded in the national accounts. And I want to stress that this, what we've done in my view is, is very much a prototype. So there are uncertainties, could be improved in many ways, um, 
as more data become available, as, as methods are improved. But I think the objective is worthwhile. That is, it's important to try to not only measure growth, but to be able to say, here is how growth looks like for people like you. So our starting point is national income as recorded in national account. So what is national income? That's GDP, gross domestic product, minus capital depreciation, which is not an income for, for anybody, plus the, the net income that the U.S. receives from abroad. So typically dividends and interest that the U.S. receives from foreign countries minus dividends and interest that it pays to foreign countries. So it's very close to GDP, and that's our starting point. And then what we try to do is to allocate this big total to each group of the population. So some forms of income of, are well captured in tax data. Typically, the dividends and interest income that wealthy individuals earn, tax data are a critical source of information to capture that because all rich people have to submit a tax return and uh, that's how we know how that form of income is distributed. Wage income as well, tax data do a very good job there. For other forms of income, you need to look at survey data. So typically, transfers, a lot of transfers are not taxable and so don't have to be reported on tax returns. And so you need to look at survey data like the CPS uh, in the United States, a current population survey. And you have a third category of income that you see neither seen tax data nor in survey data. Things like corporate retained earnings, for instance, which have increased a lot since the uh, Great Recession. Then you need to impute them. So what we do is in that research is, is pretty technical, is we, we try to explain for each income category how we capture those income categories, tax data, surveys, or imputations. We try to be very explicit about the types of imputations that we're making when there's no readily available source of information. And we try to investigate what happens when, when we impute income in different ways. And broadly speaking, the, the, the results don't change much for the simple reason that the, 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 the rise in inequality in the US, the trends are so massive that even small deviation, you know, changing imputations for, for, for some categories of income doesn't affect this, this big trend, which was already very visible in survey data or in tax data. So that's, that's the broad uh, methodology. So let's, let's start with uh, – I'm, I'm fascinated by the claim that the bottom 50% has had no gains in – economic uh, benefit, certainly from market-based economic benefit. So again, we, want to, we might want to distinguish between inequality or gains uh, from market-based results, which could be your investments, it could be your, your salary, your wages, your uh, fringe benefits. It, it, and then there's a second thing you would look at, which would be, uh, well, what about your taxes and what about transfers, government benefits you might uh, be eligible for and receive unemployment insurance, food stamps, social security, etc. So, 
the, to me, the most dramatic claim and the one that I'm most skeptical of is the idea that the bottom 50% had zero pre-tax and transfer. That is, ignore tax and transfer for a minute. Just look at the outcomes from what people earned and invested and, and gained or lost, and that is stagnant for a 34-year period during which economic growth, as you say, was quite substantial, 60% per adult over the an increase of 60% per adult it's saying that the bottom 50% got none of that so that's a very dramatic claim so what i'm my first question is what does and just a clarifying question does the does the addition of the national income approach or the national income accounts data affect that very much because that bottom 50% they're not getting a big part of the corporate retained earnings, I assume, or other things that might show up in the national accounts that aren't in taxes or survey data. Is that cor- Am I right in that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the the bottom 50%, it's actually relatively easy to observe their income because the vast, vast majority, almost all of their income, pre-tax and transfer, it's labor income, it's wages and 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 salaries and self-employment income, and and that income is typically very well recorded by the tax data and the survey data. So so this trend that there has been zero growth in pre-tax income for the bottom half of the distribution, you could see it already. Uh, pretty well in tax and survey data. Where, where tax and survey data uh, have limitations, important limitations, is not really for wage income or labor income, probably speaking, it's for capital income. Correct. Because if you look at the flow of macroeconomic capital income, so the capital share that the macroeconomy study and they find it's relatively big, about 25, 30% of national income, and they find it's, it's tended to rise in the US and in many other countries. About two thirds of this macroeconomic flow of capital income, you don't see it in tax and survey data. You're, in tax data, you only see one third of total capital income because the majority of economic capital income is actually tax exempt. That includes corporate retained earnings, imputed rents for uh, homeowners, a number of taxes like the corporate tax and property taxes, and, and the big flow of dividends and interest that's paid to pension funds. All this big flow of capital income, it's part of economic capital income, but you don't see it in tax data. Now, capital income tends to be more concentrated than labor income, which means that actually with tax data only, you can't do too good a job at studying the rich. That's kind of you know, a paradox because people started using tax data to study the rich. But if you, if you think more about it, tax data means two thirds of capital income that overwhelmingly goes to the top. So our imputations are going to play some role for the dynamic of income at the top and for the composition of income at the top. But for the bottom 
they're not playing uh, any significant role. So let's start with that. Let's just start with the bottom 50%. So uh, I want to start by saying something that I think uh, sounds like it's impossible, but I think it's a very important truth, and I, I just want to get your reaction to it. When you say that the bottom 50% uh, have no gains in income between 1980 and 2014, that does not mean, that does not rule out the, tr- the fact that if you went and looked at people in 1980 and you followed them through time, in particular if you took, say, 25-year-olds in 1980 and followed them till they were uh, 60, 59 in, uh, if I got the years right, in uh, 2014, you're not saying that none of those people had any growth because obviously millions of them did. Millions of them are better off in 2014 than they were in 1980, right? That's correct. So the approach that we have in this research is, let's say, a cross-sectional approach. What this means very simply is that we look at the distribution of income year after year. We are not trying to follow people over time, which is would be very interesting and important and hard to do. But in this research, it's very much a first step. We don't follow people over time. Now, is it likely that if you were able to follow people over time, you would find a significant amount of growth for the bottom 50%? I'm a bit skeptical. For the following reason, what we try to do, what we do in this research is we compute income distributions by age groups. So we can look at the bottom 50% of income earners age 20 to 30, 30 to 40, 40 to 50. And when you do that, you see basically no growth uh, for the bottom 50% within each age group. And so that suggests that even if, of course, you know, over the life cycle, people's income and wages change, there's been this huge stagnation of, of wages for, for working class America at all age levels, such that it's, it's unlikely that even if you were able to follow people over time, you would see a lot of a lot of income growth. And, and, you know, more generally, there's no indication that there's a lot of mobility in or out of the, of the bottom 50%. It's, it, there's no indication that people in the bottom 50% are very likely to uh, move, say, to the top 10% or let alone to the top 1%. The, the social security data that are used to study these questions where you can follow people over time are very clear on that. There's a lot actually of persistence in income over time. So if you are in the bottom 50% uh, of the distribution at some point, you're still very likely to be in the bottom 50% uh, next year or two years after. But, you know, we need more research on that question, and that's certainly a next next step for for our research. The reason it's important more generally is because if, to take an example, the United States had a lot of low-skill immigrants come into the country between 1980 and 2014, which there's a decent number. Obviously, there's a bunch, but there's also some high-skilled immigrants who came, which complicates it. But if you had low-skill immigrants only who came, uh, then what you would observe is 
you might observe that the average wage level in the United States could go down, but every person who was already here before the immigration are better off. And so the, the average growth rate for the bottom 50% in that situation could be very misleading about the state of the economy. It could be just a composition effect. Right. So that's, that's, that's one issue. Now, when, when, when people do follow the same people over time, they do find very, very different levels of, of growth. And in fact, I mean, the, it's shocking. I, when, when I, when I talk about these numbers, people always assume they can't be true because we all know so many things about the income distribution, but I don't understand how these numbers can be so different. So for example, uh, Gerald Auten has done uh, work with colleagues. Uh, it was in the National Tax Journal. I'm just going to quote these numbers because they're so striking. He looked at people age 35 to 40 in 1987. So he's going to look at a 20-year period, 87 to 2007. It doesn't exactly overlap with 1980 to 2014, but it's a 20-year piece of your time period. He finds They find that, shockingly, the poorest people had the biggest gains in income. The, the lowest quintile over that 20-year period, that is, if you started, you're 35 years old in 1987, 20 years later, the people in the bottom quintile had doubled their income. They had 100% growth. That's the, that's the change in the median within that quintile. For the next quintile, it's 42%. For the next, it's 27. So the three low, the, the median income within the three, the bottom 60% went up by more than, tw- went up by 27, 42, and 100%. The fourth highest quintile only went up 11, and the fifth only went up 5%. So the largest gains went to the poorest people. And that's totally different than the standard finding that people claim about the poor, that the average person, the median person, the bottom 50% are making no progress. What do you think is different about their results relative to yours? I think there are, there are many differences. So there's one, one thing is what's the income that you're looking at? Are you looking at pre-tax income? Are you, are you, look, are you including some or many forms of government transfers? What we've tried to do in our research is to have a, a really clear distinction between what's income before any form of government intervention, uh, what we call pre-tax income, and income after you include all forms of government taxes and transfers. Another difference is how do you deal with changes in household size, changes in marriage rates and divorce rates, a lot of the analysis in inequality you know, is conducted at the household level, which you know can be a problem if household size changes a lot, which which has happened in the U.S. So what we try to do in our in our research is to address that that issue by looking at income per adult, where we split income the income of married couples fifty fifty. Uh, uh, between each spouse. So to have at least a consistent unit of observation over time that's not affected by uh, changes in household size. And, and most importantly, what we've tried to do is to have numbers that add up to total GDP growth and to total national income. And so if you believe that... Um, Income has grown a lot at the bottom of the 
distribution, it has to be the case that it has grown much less at the top of the distribution than, than what we estimate. But that's contradicted by a, a huge and overwhelmingly large set of evidence from tax data in particular. Um, so, uh, again, I think more work needs to be done to, to better study, you know, changes in income when you follow people over time. But the reading that I, that I do of the most recent studies that follow the entire population uh, of working uh, age Americans using social security data, is that even when you do that, when you follow people over time, you see a huge increase in lifetime inequality. And the points about immigration, I mean, it might play a role. Uh, I'm not sure, though, that it explains a lot of what is going on. Because look at Europe. Before the Great Recession, the crisis of 2008-2009, there was actually more immigration in the EU than in the US. Uh, that has changed since the uh, Great Recession. But if you look at the 2000 to 2009 period, that's, that's, that's true. And you have a number of countries, it includes France, Germany, Scandinavian countries, where immigration was much higher than in the US. And yet, we don't see the type of stagnation in bottom 50% incomes that we observe in the US. Getting back to the case of France, in France we see that the bottom 50% has been growing at roughly the same rate as the entire economy. Uh, looking at Scandinavian countries is even more spectacular. There's much more inequality, uh, there's much more equality there in Scandinavian countries uh, than in the US, and growth has been much more equitably distributed in the US, uh, despite higher immigration uh, than in the US. So I think what's more important to as, as, as an explanatory factor uh, for understanding what has happened in the US is not uh, low-scale immigration, but it's uh, a number of uh, changes to policy. Uh, the decline in the real federal minimum wage since the late 1960s or 1970s, the big decline in the role of unions, more broadly speaking, the, the, the decline in the bargaining power of, of labor, uh, very unequal access to higher education. Um, all of these things, I think, uh, have contributed to the stagnation of bottom 50% income in the U.S. Okay, we're going to come back to those because um, those are really you know, interesting and provocative. I, I disagree with three of them, but I agree with one of them. Um, so that's pretty good. Uh, I, I just want to make a clarifying point on the immigration, and then I want to ask you a question about the um, family structure issue. So I, I agree with you on immigration. I don't think it's important. I just gave that as an example of how uh, misleading it could be when you look at different snapshots over time uh, because they're not the same people. Um, I think it's very interesting that all – not not true anymore, but for a while all the studies looked at the, that followed the same people over time showed large gains for the poorest people. That's true in the panel study of income dynamics that people have analyzed, uh, which is a, follows people over time since uh, 
since 1970s. Um, but that, the, that, yeah, go that, ahead. That's, that, that's, so that, that may be true in some studies that use survey data like PSID, but that's not true in the studies that use the population-wide social security data. Yeah, that's a big recent, difference. Yeah, the recent ones that came out. But the but the Auten study that I mentioned, and that's A-U-T-E-N, we'll put a link up to it. The Auten study I mentioned is actually using tax returns, and it's quite exhaustive. It's um, it's an enormous sample of of the entire universe of tax returns um, that showed the largest gains for the bottom. And not just the largest gains, quite lar- dramatically larger gains. Um, but I, the question I want to focus want to focus on for a minute before we get to the causation and speculation about what the explanation is for this. Um, when you say, let, let's talk about households, and you make a very good point, which because it drives me crazy. Uh, there's been a huge change in household structure in the United States over the last 35, 40 years. Uh, it goes back to the 70s when the divorce rate in the United States started to rise very, very rapidly. And rose very disproportionately by education. So there was a big increase in divorce for the people with the least education. People with the highest education tended not to divorce. And I think it's either in your results or in others I've read, uh, among the top 1%, percents that's married is very high, remained very high, whereas the rest of the population, it's fallen dramatically, uh, but particularly dramatically among low-skilled, low-education workers. So what we've seen in the United States since the 1970s is an increase in households that's not due to population growth, but it's due to either divorce or people not marrying at all. So the And that that increase in households has not been spread equally across the income distribution. It's disproportionately found in the lower half. Does that when – you, when you apportion family income – household income equally between husband and wife. Do you think you're, are you controlling for that? We, we have a way, which is not the only way. And, and, and we consider other ways to, to control for that, which is to always conduct the analysis at the adult individual level. Then the question becomes, okay, how do you split income uh, within married couples? And, you know, there's, there's a lot of research on that and, sharing rules uh, among couples and um, uh, very interesting results in this area. But it's hard to have long time series for empirical sharing rules. So in our benchmark series, what we do is we we are agnostic and we just say income is split equally. Now, with the, with the data that, that we have and that we're going to make online, the micro files that we're going to make online relatively soon, you can experiment with other sharing rules and you can say, okay, uh, uh, husbands, uh, uh, you know, take a greater fraction of uh, uh, the couple's, you know, income or a smaller fraction or this has changed over time. Uh, but that that's the way that we address this issue is, is we think that if you want to be consistent, if you want to create series that are consistent with macroeconomic growth, which is typically expressed in terms of per adult income, you need to study the distribution of, of per adult income. And so I think that's a progress compared to uh, the... the the studies that look at household incomes and sometimes use you know, equivalent scales to individualized income. Because with such studies, you can't um, be consistent with macroeconomic growth. You can't really decompose macroeconomic growth 
across uh, uh, social groups. I, I want to add that when I raised the data findings of um, the paper by Otten et al. in the National Tax Journal, you correctly asked the question, made the observation that depends on what kind of income you're looking at. They were, I think, looking at, at after tax, after transfer. Uh, so they find large effects. Uh, they may not have found those same effects if they had narrowed it down to labor income. Uh, but it does also challenge your conclusion that tax and transfers don't have a big effect. And then Auten has that other paper with Splinter uh, from 2016 where they find large effects in reductions. They find much smaller growth in inequality uh, when you include government taxes and transfers. Do you think – what do you think explains that difference relative to yours? Do you know? Have you looked at it? Yes, yes. I've, you know, we, we've looked at it carefully and there are a number of differences. So uh, one big difference is that the, we, we try and we do distribute 100% of national income and they don't. Another difference is we look really at pre-tax and transfer income – uh, whereas they they look at income concepts which are more mixed. So typically in the earlier paper that you uh, mentioned, it would be income including some forms of government transfer, but not excluding taxes, for instance. Now, we you know, taxes for the bottom 50%, people don't know that, but they've increased quite a lot. So because payroll taxes. Because of payroll yeah. taxes, yeah. exactly. Correct. Which increased a lot. And the... the Overall income tax, you know, the overall tax system in the U.S. If you compute average tax rates per by income group, taking into account all taxes at all levels of government, you find that the top one percent average tax rate is is a bit higher than the average macroeconomic tax rate in the U.S., which is thirty percent. You find that the bottom fifty percent average tax rate is a bit below thirty percent, but the difference is really small. That is. You know, altogether, the tax system in the U.S. is, is barely progressive. We're, it's close to a flat tax where everybody almost pays 30% of their income. And that's a big change compared to 1960s and 1970s where the top 1% uh, average tax rate was significantly higher and, and bigger than the average tax rate. And the tax rate for the bottom 50% was significantly lower, below the average tax rate. And so, you know, it's very important to be consistent. You can't just look at transfers, but forget about taxes and vice versa. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that explains a lot of the differences. Uh, let's let's talk about the um, possible explanations. Uh, if if the, the last thing I want to add is that uh, consumption data uh, also – to me, cast some doubt on the claim that the bottom 50% have made no change in their economic well-being since 1980 or a very small change. They have The bottom 20% has much greater access, and of course, a fortiori, the bottom 50% has much greater access to a huge range of consumer goods, uh, cell phones, washing machines, air conditioning, cars – uh, houses have gotten larger. Uh, the median house is larger. It's not just the, the high houses at the highest end. So to me, that's also a challenge to the to the finding that there's been no gain. I look at the 
I was alive in 1980. I was, I think, older than you are, um, than you were then. Were you born in 1980? Um, but I was an, I was an adult. Uh, so I, re- I remember what 1980 looked like. And it wasn't just that uh, the world's changed a lot. It's a lot richer. There's a lot more stuff. Um, it's not just going to the top 1% or the top 10%. It's all over the place. It's, it's at every Walmart. It's, there's a lot, I'm not saying it's particularly important or good, but it's hard to, argue, hard to understand the claim that there's no gain uh, for that um, group. When... This is, the sniff, this is not a very sophisticated argument. No, it's, no, it's, a, I, I, it's a I sniff test. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is that when you look at the macroeconomic data, so let's forget about distributions for a second. Is it the case that there's been a lot of growth in the U.S. since 1980? In the macro data, the answer, frankly, is not really. Average income per adult in real terms, has increased only 1.4% per year since 1980. That's what the macro data tell you. Now, maybe macroeconomic statistics understate the actual growth rate of the economy. Maybe because they... Price uh, in, the price you know, index. problem with price index. Yeah, not. Price indices, yes, and they overstate inflation. They don't properly take into account new products and... So the price index that we use, and that's also a difference with some of the studies that you mentioned, is I think what's currently the best price index, the one that takes into account the substitution bias and, and, and other problems with the CPI. It's not the CPI. It's a national income price deflator. It's the deflator that's used, the price index that's used to compute real macroeconomic growth, and it shows less inflation than the CPI. So we already take into account one standard and important you know, uh, criticism that's been addressed to, to, to this literature, which is, oh, no, you, know, you, you understate real income growth because you overstate inflation. Now, maybe even the GDP deflator or the national income deflator might overstate inflation. Uh, that, that's, you know, that, that's possible. Awesome. What we do is that we, we take the, the national accounts data as given. That's maybe one limitation of what we do. You know, we know that they have problems. But we think it's valuable to say, let's introduce distributional measures in this macro data. And then if the macro data change, then our results also will change. Yeah, no, I think that's, um, that's exactly right. Uh, I do think you're using a better... I mean, it's such a complicated question, right? Because ideally what you want is a basket of goods that the bottom 50% buys, which is, of course, the, the macro, the GDP deflator has business purchases and, and there's a big interesting technical question about how computers have changed their price over time and how that's affected productivity and whether the falls correctly for whether we're measuring it correctly for individuals versus the economy as a whole and not not something to get into right now but uh, I mean, it's obviously a really hard problem and you made you did the best you could obviously that's I, th- I think you did I think that's there's no nothing particularly uh, easy or uh, definitive about that decision you have to make a decision that's the, probably the best one and it's consistent with the GDP account so it's a good choice and I, I didn't Answer your question on, on consumption growth, which I think is is really important. So, first of all, consumption—the the data we have to study consumption of, frankly, of, of 
limited quality, unfortunately. They miss a lot of consumption. They don't capture well the consumption of the wealthy and so on. But the second thing that's important is that consumption and income can evolve differently if saving rates change. True. And certainly that's that's part of what has happened in the US, which is that household debt has skyrocketed before the financial crisis. The saving rates uh, of the middle class and the working class has collapsed. What we find is that in the 10 years before the rate recession, the saving rate of the bottom 90% of the income of the wealth distribution, when you rank people by wealth, was actually negative. Okay, so they were consuming more than their income. And that's a big part of uh, you know, the, the, the macroeconomic story. And it also can help reconcile the trends in consumption. Maybe there's been some increase in real consumption with the trends in income. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Obviously, uh, in the run-up to 2007, 2008, a lot of people saw their home the values of their homes or what they thought was the value of their home uh, rising. And many people borrowed from that future, uh, what they thought was a future capital gain in order to increase their consumption now. And then turns out that capital gain never materialized. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's, it's definitely the case that, that there was some consumption that was financed out of thin air that wasn't real or financed out of creditors who never got their money back, for sure, mm-hmm. uh, who, who consumed less, presumably, <laughs> um, than they expected. Let's turn to the causes. Um, so uh, the first uh, – you, you mentioned four, which are all interesting, the decline in unionization in the United States, the, the stagnation or actual fall and the real value of the minimum wage, the uh, – loss of bargaining power, labor, and uh, access to education. So I don't understand those arguments in general. I do understand the last one. Let let me raise the issues I don't understand about the first three. So let's start with unionization. Unionization in the United States in the private sector pretty much fallen steadily since 1945, you know, in the aftermath of World War II, Manufacturing as a percentage of total employment fell steadily. Unionization fell steadily, both in in percentage and in absolute terms. Um, and so it's hard to understand why – when we look at – let me say it differently. When we look at all the data on these issues of stagnation of the middle class, again, I'm moving away from inequality right now. Just this question of how the average person's doing and whether they benefit from growth – it's hard to understand why 1973, say, or in your case with your data, 1980, um, it, it looks so bleak because that unionization was falling all along. And those gains in the measured data are very different in the post-war 45 to 73 or 74 period than they are in the later period, suggesting maybe it's not unionization. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's, it's possible that the decline in unionization it affects income distribution with some lag because it takes time to change you know, wage contracts. There is some stickiness in uh, labor agreements. Uh, what I find pretty striking is when I look at the cross-section of, of countries today and, and also you know, the panel of countries at the global level, 
there is a, a, a pretty strong correlation between unionization and uh, income inequality. So you look at the countries that where the, the middle class is, is doing well uh, these days. Germany, Scandinavian countries, these are economies where unions ha- have power. You know, unions are, are in, in corporate boards. Uh, uh, a big fraction of the workforce is unionized, much more than in the U.S. So th- these are economies that, just like the U.S., have been subject to the same trends of globalization, uh, open international trade. They, they do import a lot also from China. They do export a lot. So they're very integrated in global markets. Uh, they have faced the same trends in terms of technological trend, uh, technological change. Uh, and yet, the income distribution and the growth rate of income for the middle class and the working class has been, has been very different. And it, it's hard to say what fraction of these owes to unions and what fraction of these owes to minimum wages, education, and, and other factors, but altogether, I think the results we have suggest that, broadly speaking, policies matter a lot. And policies affect the pre-tax and transfer distribution of income. And uh, they matter a lot because if they didn't matter, we should see the, more or less the same trends in all the world's developed countries as, uh, you know, as in the U.S. And that's not at all what we see. Well, I guess the question is what other trends are going on beside policy changes, um, the demographic changes we talked about to the extent that they're hard to control for uh, could be very different in the United States than, than elsewhere. Um, I think worldwide in general, um, there are similar trends. You're, you're right. They could be different in some countries relative to others. The magnitudes may not be the same, but you know, the growth of the growth of command of the top 1%, the, the income share is measured going to the top 1% has grown very dramatically in a lot of industrialized countries. Um, and you know, I just think about, well, anyway, I, I, I'm not, I'm open to the possibility it's unionization. I don't, I don't think it's, as you say, it, it's, it could be just one factor. Uh, but there are other factors that aren't, that are not the same across countries. Globalization is one that is similar across a lot of countries. But do you have a, do you have an idea what what unionization is in Germany? In the United States, I think it's now under ten percent in the private sector. I don't want to say you know a number that I don't know off the top of my head, but I do know that unions in Germany they play a much bigger role in in, in corporations than in the U.S. So typically, unions have uh, several. Uh, board members, uh, they are on the corporate board, so they are involved in in, in decision making at the, in the, in the, within corporations, uh, and um, uh, yeah, that's that's a that's a big uh, uh, difference with uh, uh, with the US, and uh, it's likely to be part of the reason why the, the German working class is is doing better than than the US. You know, just the buying power that it has. Is uh, is way stronger in the U.S. Um, corporations 
increasingly uh, since the 1980s have been the, 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 have been viewed as as having for sole purposes the, the goal of, of maximizing shareholder value. So that, that's something that's that's that people feel very strongly in the US that uh, what a CEO should do is maximize shareholder value. Now ask this question to people in Germany, to people in Scandinavia, is the role of a CEO to maximize shareholder value? And they have very different answers. They would, you know, most of them would say, no, there are several stakeholders. There are shareholders, there are workers, customers, local governments, and we have a duty towards all of these stakeholders, not only shareholders. And so, of course, if this you know, with such a different state of mind, I think that explains, you know, part of the difference between the U.S. and other countries. And I think if you look carefully at the data, I, I'd like to, to push back a little bit on this idea that the top 1% has surged everywhere. I think the, the, the rise in the top 1% income share among the set, uh, among rich countries is actually a uniquely American phenomenon. It is not something that you see in continental Europe. It is not something that you see in Canada. It is something that you see a little bit in the UK, but the magnitude in the United Kingdom of the rise is much less than the US. The US is the main, the only outlier among rich countries. The top 1% used to have 10% of total pre-tax income in 1980. Now, earns 20% of total pre-tax income. Whereas for the bottom 50%, it's exactly the opposite. The bottom 50% used to earn 20% of total pre-tax income in 1980, now earns about 10-12% of total pre-tax income. There is no other developed country in the world where such a phenomenon has happened since 1980. Well, you know, there's two possible we were talking mainly about bottom 50% before, but now we're on the top. The top. The United States has, again, remembering that we're not following the same people. We're looking at, at a point in time, uh, I always use the example of an athlete. In 1980, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson were the best basketball players, and they made a lot more than the average person in the stands who was following them. In 2014... The best basketball players, I would say, or you could argue who they are, but let's say LeBron James and, and uh, Stephen Curry, uh, they make much more than the ratio of their income to a fan in the stands is much higher because basketball is a lot more popular around the world. Globalization has occurred. The gains to being the best have increased. Um, and one could argue that, yes, in the United States – uh, it's much easier to make a lot more money today than it was to make a lot more money in 1980. And that's not a bad thing. There are examples of it that are bad things. People on Wall Street, I think, have, have benefited uh, in a grotesque way from the willingness of the U.S. government to treat them with special favors. And I think that's a distortion that we should be upset about. Whether we should be upset about LeBron James, we, we might want to tax him more. I, you're right. We might agree that that's a good thing. We might not. But if we're just looking at the underlying effectiveness of the economy and the role of of market forces versus, say, government policy to set salaries, 
I don't find anything surprising or disturbing about the fact that the fact the United States is in many ways a more entrepreneurial economy than outside the United States. The opportunity of access to venture capital is unparalleled. So a lot of reasons why Sergey Brin and Larry Page and, and Mark Zuckerberg and LeBron James and all the, these folks, entertainers would also be included, do a lot better today than they did a long time ago. And I don't find that disturbing. I find parts mm -hmm. of it disturbing. What, what are your thoughts? Well, I think, and for, you know, basketball typically is not a very good example because I, I, I'm sorry to say, but people in Europe and in, outside of the U.S., they, they, don't, they don't, most of them don't really care about American basketball. And so it, it has always been, it still is something that is of interest only to the U.S. I think they care in China, actually, which is maybe, a, maybe kind of a big country. <laughs> But to me, what drives, what has been driving uh, top uh, incomes and, and, and in particular for, for top corporate executives is, is much less globalization than the big changes that have happened in terms of tax policy in the US. So think about it. Globalization happens everywhere, but it's only in the U.S. that you, you've seen CEO pay skyrocket. What has happened in the U.S. is the U.S. was the country in the 1960s with the highest top marginal income tax rate in the world, 90%. It's, it's hard to, to have more than 90%. <laughs> you can, but... but, but <laughs> you can. It's hard. Not it's much possible. room. You can, you can have 100%, but... It's, it was 90%. Yeah. It's moved from 90% to something in the mid-20%, mid-20s in 1986, just after the Tax Reform Act of 1986. It's a dramatic development. What this means is that in 1960s, you face a 90% top marginal income tax rate. There is absolutely no incentive to try to earn $50 million in income when any uh, out of any extra dollar that you earn, 90 cents are going to go to the IRS. There's just no such incentive to do so. Of course, when you, when you face a top marginal income tax rate of 20 or 30 percent, now, now it becomes valuable to try to earn very high incomes. And then the question becomes, okay, is it now top earners have incentives to earn more? Is, is it good? Is it, is it you know, uh, translating into a lot of, of growth for the U.S. as a whole? Or is it mostly at the expense of other stakeholders? And here, there's no you know, perfect evidence, but at a high level, what I find compelling is that you've, you, you don't see that macroeconomic growth has been particularly high in the U.S. since the 1980s. Again, actually, it has been pretty low. You don't see that. But you see that the income of top earners has boomed. So one reading of this evidence is that thanks to these lower tax rates, high earners have been earning more, but it's not because they've been producing so much more. It's because what they've earned, these are other groups of the population which, which have not earned actually that income. So it's at the expense of other stakeholders. So typically, corporate executives are better able now 
to uh, extract very high salaries from, from corporate boards in the U.S., that's at the expense of shareholders. Uh, that's at the expense of maybe other workers in the firms. That, I think, explains not certainly not everything, but part of the increase in the, the very highest incomes in the U.S., well, it's interesting you mentioned uh, Europeans don't care much about basketball. I, th- I thought you were going to say that basketball players don't make up a very large portion of the 1%. Even athletes don't and even entertainers don't. Uh, and some might even say it's um, it's not so much uh, you know, Wall Street even. I mean, it's a big debate and you can, you're going to help me understand it better because I think you know the data much better than I do. As to what the real source of those income gains are, when you mention CEOs, a lot of you know a lot of people have argued. I don't know if it's true, but a lot of people have argued that American CEOs make more because they tend to have more responsibility. Their companies are dramatically larger than companies outside the United States. Uh, the part of this, so I'm interested. You know, CEOs are some part of the one percent uh, for sure. But I'm, what I'm really interested in, so I'm interested in what your thoughts are on um, on sort of the decomposition of, of the in, where that income comes from in the top 1%, because I know you've looked at it. In terms of who are the top earners, a lot of them are indeed corporate executives uh, in, in various industries. So finance is an important component, but it's far from all of it. Uh, in lots of industries, in, in finance, in the healthcare industry, in manufacturing, across the board, in pharmaceutical, in the pharmaceutical industry, you, you've seen the the pay of the, the top executives grow dramatically faster than uh, average worker pay. So that's part of, of what's happening. But the data we, we, we have now, getting back to our distribution of national accounts, show that most of the, now the majority of the income of top 1% earners is not labor income. It's not wages and, and salaries and, and, and stock options and bonuses. It's actually capital income. And that's a relatively new development. In the 1980s, 1990s, the rise of U.S. income inequality was essentially driven by an increase in labor income inequality, the, the, the upsurge of top corporate executive pay. Since 2000, it's been very different. Labor income inequality actually has not increased, might even have declined a little bit. All of the rise in the top 1% income share since 2000 owes to an increase in capital income in the dividend income, corporate profits, interest that that high income earners get. And, and as a, that's important because, of course, the, the forces that, that shape the distribution of labor income and the distribution of wealth and capital income are quite different. And so if you want to understand rising inequality in, in recent years in the U.S., you need to ask yourself, okay, well, in, uh, it's coming from capital, so what's the reason for that? So one potential explanation is that these high labor incomes of the 80s, 90s have been saved at a, at a pretty high rate. And so these high earners have been accumulating quite a lot of wealth. That wealth itself, it, it generates some, some return. And 
so, so capital income, which in, in turn, this flow of capital income is being saved at a higher rate. So wealth further accumulates, and so capital income concentration further increases. And I think that this is what is happening in the United States at the moment. Not everything corresponds to that, but that was not very important in the 1980s, 1990s. Now it's, it's becoming very important. Capital income at the top is more important than labor income. Yeah, no, that's, that's very interesting. Uh, the, the point I wanted to make, uh, I lost my train of thought a minute ago, but the point I wanted to add is that I, I just don't agree that saying that you want to maximize shareholder value means, therefore, you don't care about stakeholders um, outside the profit and loss. Obviously, if you treat your workers badly, you're not going to have very good returns for your shareholders. I guess the question, though, is whether there's some room to uh, or cultural constraints on either CEO pay or what you have to pay workers that would be more likely in those places you're talking about? I think that's the, that's the question. Yes, and I think when you have worker representatives uh, in, in corporate boards, that, that sets limits uh, to, to, to CEO pay, in, in that, you know, there's no really such limit in the U.S. In the U.S., it's possible to, to get salaries of dozens or hundreds of millions of, of dollars in a way that's for you know that that seems impossible uh, in in Scandinavian countries or in most German corporations and uh, there are cultural reasons there are reasons that that are linked to the the, the role of unions and in, in corporate boards and there are tax reasons as well and in the US again if if you manage let's say to to earn income that's taxable as capital gains with the top marginal income tax rate and that at the federal level 23.8 percent that's 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 not a lot and so when it's 23.8 yes it's really worth it to try to earn a hundred million uh in most other countries it's, it's significantly more than that well you're presuming and it's i want to we can end with this because i want to come back to your point you made earlier about uh well, we won't quite end on if you have another few minutes but the the point you made about bargaining power, usually in market forces tend to result in higher salaries when taxes go up and lower salaries when taxes go down. So you're talking about the desire people have to make more money. What your desire is in a market doesn't matter. You're stuck with usually the market rate. So when your tax rate goes, uh, say your tax rate goes up to 90, goes up, if you can still get the job, usually you're going to, that's going to increase your the market wage you're going to earn. Um, but if you don't believe wages are set by market forces, which maybe they aren't but for CEOs, I, I, they might not be. There might be some the, – the ability of boards to, to act capriciously maybe is sufficiently large. But for the, going back to the average person, I've never understood this claim that bargaining power matters. There's – it's not, I'm not in a bazaar. I'm not in a street market or a farmer's market where I can haggle over prices. There's a going rate for usually a certain type of skill. So my bargaining power maybe means something differently than I, than I mean when I hear, than what I hear when you use that phrase. Well, I think it, this is a question that's connected to the growing evidence about the, the rise of market power in the U.S. and the fact that it seems we are increasingly so 
not on a perfectly competitive market, and neither on the labor market nor on the product market. There's growing evidence of rising markups, of rising concentration, maybe of rising uh, monopsony power in the labor market. And as soon as you are not in the econ 101, perfectly competitive, perfect information market, you know, pay can be different than uh, the marginal product of, of labor. It can be higher, it can, it can be lower in ways that are determined a lot by um, intra-firm bargaining and so by the relative power of, of, of unions and by, by policy. And that, I think, is, you know, explains, again, part of the divergence between wage inequality in the U.S. and wage inequality uh, in European countries where salaries tend to be fixed by rigid salary scales and, and, and much less by uh, pure market forces, which don't necessarily give you a wage equal to your marginal product, depending on the type of competition that you have. Yeah, well, it's interesting, though. It's, uh, you're, in, uh, you're in the Bay Area in California, where I spend my summers, and I run into and chat with a lot of engineers at Google and Facebook. And uh, Google is not using their monopoly power to the extent they have it to um, pay low salaries and, and treat their workers badly. They it's a, they're very pleasant places to work. Maybe be even more pleasant if they had less market power. I don't know. I think, actually, think they're making some monopoly power and they're using it. They have some, and they're using it partly to reduce their turnover rate. And they, their workers uh, are very. The ones I talk to feel that they're very well treated, and they do make a relatively large amount of money, uh, and they get free lunch too. Um, let's close with something we can agree on, with a little more eagerness, perhaps, which is the education system. The last factor. That you mentioned, I think we probably agree that the people, the bottom half, and certainly the bottom twenty percent, have bad access, inadequate access to skills, and certainly to even formal education. Um, what do you think we can do to do a better job there? Yeah, that's a, that's that's a complicated question, but it's it's one of the things that I find most striking and shocking about the U.S. economy is how well, your probability to attend college is predicted by the rank of your parents in the income distribution. That is, it's, it's almost a perfect one-to-one correlation. If your parents are in the top 1%, you have a 100% chance to attend college. If your parents are in the bottom 1%, it's not exactly a zero probability you have to attend college, but it's close to zero. It's, it's about 10%. So think about it. This is This is you know, incredibly unfair and, and and a huge problem for the US. Now, what what are the ways to to address that that issue? It's it's a complicated question. So I I personally think that um, tuition fees, you know, tend to prevent access to, to four year colleges for uh, young Americans from a, uh, a working class uh, background. And so that having more uh, uh, free uh, public higher education could help having more equal access to higher education. Now, it, 
if that's one thing that might help, it's far from the only thing. It's important. The important, you know, thing, is, the important thing is to graduate. And graduation rates are even... To, yeah. Absolutely, I totally agree with that. I also think that there are lots of uh, problems at the you know high school level, elementary school level, and so these are you know, you know these are very important questions. But maybe we can talk about these in, in another show. My my guest today has been Gabriel Zuckman. Gabriel, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you very much. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.